Well, this morning we're going to, uh, like I said, just look at Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4. And um, as, as we go through this final chapter of Hebrews, we understand that the preacher to the Hebrews does have this major gospel focus that's he, that he's engaged on here as he, as he brings this final exhortation to the audience. And that, and that exhortation, that final piece of instruction that he's giving, is centered on this uh, understanding of our lives as followers of Jesus, as those who've been renewed in all the grace that Jesus extends to us, our lives now are consumed with this reality that everything for us is a matter of worship. Uh, we're living our lives liturgically, like we've been like we've been thinking about, where we we get that word from Hebrews chapter twelve, verse eighteen, where the the preacher there has told us that we've now uh, received this kingdom, and since we've received all the amazing truths of what Jesus has accomplished for us, now we can now serve God. In other words, we can it's actually the the liturgy word. We can liturgize God with our lives of thanksgiving. And so what the preacher has done then is he's helped us to begin thinking about what this liturgical life, what this life that reflects worship in all categories can look like. So much so, as he works this out in chapter 13, that by the time he gets down to verses 15 and 16, he talks about how praise isn't just a matter of, of, the, of the, our lips and the things we say to God and about God, but praise even includes things like good works that we walk in and sharing with others. All of these things actually reflect a sacrifice that we offer to God. So we have this worship language throughout chapter 13 now as the preacher works out this liturgical kind of living as it's reflected in all areas of life. And we started to see this last week in verses 1 to 3 of chapter 13 where the preacher uh, starts to speak about uh, this, this worship-filled life as it's expressed in our concern for others around us. And so in verses 1 to 3, we saw how this liturgical life can be lived as we serve one another in the local fellowship. As we love our fellow Christian believers in church, uh, that is actually not just a, a horizontal expression of of care, but it's actually also a vertical aspect of praise. We're worshiping God as we love others. And then in verse 2, we saw how a concern for others extends to the stranger, where the preacher speaks about hospitality and, and loving people who we don't even know, but bringing them into our sphere of care is actually an expression of worship as well, as we're doing that to the glory of God. And then in verse 3, we worship as we, as we empathize with those who are persecuted. Uh, we spoke about that there, as we engage with those and pray for those who are struggling uh, because because of their faithfulness to Jesus, who are pressed down because of their faithfulness to Jesus, even that is an expression of our own worship as we empathize with them. And so, so last week we saw how this life of responding to all that Jesus has done for us, this life uh, is certainly exercised uh, in the care and concern for others. And as we do that, we're operating in this realm of giving glory and honor to the God who saves us. Uh, we're, we're not uh, seeking to find His approval by doing these things. It's not as if we love one another in the church and then love the stranger and, and, and have concern for the persecuted. If we do that long enough and well enough, then God will accept us. No, the preacher has said, since we are receiving this kingdom, since we have been given all the realities of Christ as a gift, now we're responding to that in these kinds of ways. 
And so that aspect of our life of worship, the concern and care for others, like we talked about last time, uh, that that was a a central topic to speak about. It's a central element of our life of worship. And and actually, it's not too difficult or or sensitive a topic to speak about. It it can be a a bit convicting to talk about our care for others as a life of worship, no doubt. Uh, Loving others is an area where we can feel our weakness at times. It can be challenging, uh, sometimes even in really big ways. But the subject matter in general is something that we're really prepared to speak about. In fact, we're kind of glad that the preacher brought it up. Uh, Loving others in our church, loving the stranger, uh, even concern for those who are persecuted for Jesus' sake. These are categories we're certainly glad to be renewed in. Um, and, and, and even speak quite freely about. So, so we say, if we could interact with the preacher a little bit, maybe if there was an intermission in this sermon, he let us go out and get coffee, we'd like to say to him, you know, thanks for bringing that up in verses 1 to 3. I needed to be renewed in that. Uh, that, that, that. That's very helpful for me to think about that liturgical aspect of gospel living, caring for one another. I'm glad we're talking about this. To which the preacher might respond and say, don't thank me quite yet. And he might respond that way because as we continue to go through categories of liturgical living here in Hebrews chapter 13, the preacher now moves from speaking about concern for others to now making this liturgical life business extraordinarily personal. So in verses 4 to 6, he gets personal and he says we need to have a word now about living a life of worship which certainly exercises itself in these ways toward others and all of this, but now we're going to talk about it as it relates to marriage, sex, money, and stuff. How's that? And boom, the room clears. We can just imagine the first audience squirming in their seats. Loving others, that's a nice big gospel topic. We're happy about that. But this life of worship now expressed in spheres like like marriage and and sexual fidelity and finances. And and now we're talking about the things I want so badly that I feel I can't live without. These kinds of things. This is getting pretty personal. Which is exactly what the preacher intends to do. Because as we know, the liturgical life is not a matter of mere externals that are evident and expressed in only public ways, as we love each other and things like that. But the liturgical life is a life lived before God who saves us to live all corners of our life, all public corners, all private corners of our life, in a way that ultimately brings Him glory. And and so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to start in on this, on this first main area here in verse 4 where the preacher speaks about marriage and sex, sexual fidelity. And then what we'll do um, is, is next we'll take on the, uh, the, the money and, and contentment section. Uh, that'll be a, a few weeks out. You remember, this is, uh, we're here this week and then, and then I'm gone on vacation for a few weeks. So, so it'll be just like old times. It'll be Jason. Patrick and Josh preaching for us. And then we'll get back to this. So, so a little break in between. But, but we'll, we'll think about money and material contentment next time. This week, uh, we're going to look at what the preacher says about marriage and, and the sexual fidelity uh, that, that we're called to, uh, to engage in, which again is a focus of our liturgical life. This is a sphere in which we offer up our worship to the Lord. Uh, I should just say, obviously, with, with the ages of our group, I'll be careful as we go. Um, you know, I don't want Jason to be riding home in the car with awkward questions or anything like that. So we'll, we'll, we'll be careful here. But <laughs> Good, okay, so let's, let's, let's start in. If you look at verse 4, um, we're, we're going to see ultimately that, that, you know, marriage, as we think about marriage just generally in society, marriage is something that, that, that uh, 
can be can be affected in so many ways from social views at the moment to our own uh, struggles to the pressures that it brings to a desire to be married if we're not married uh, to, to a desire to have things more whole maybe if we're struggling in a marriage marriage is a huge topic for us to consider under the scriptures there's a there's a, a world of sermons we could have around the subject of marriage uh, though we're going to c- try and constrain it here to the to the to, to the direct uh, topic at hand and, and and we're going to do this because ultimately again the point here is how we view marriage isn't just indicative of, of maybe our, our, our leanings in times of socially changing views around us or something like that. Marriage, uh, as, as much as it might seem to be, is not ultimately a political issue or a social issue, but how we view marriage is much bigger than that in that it's actually a category that's indicative of our posture of worship or not worship under the living God. And, and so it's, a, it's an extraordinarily important thing to, to, to work through. So let's look at verse 4. And we're going to focus on three aspects uh, that, the, that the preacher calls out here in terms of a liturgical life as it relates to marriage. And we'll begin uh, just by uh, taking a look at what we'll, we'll, we'll say is the liturgical truth about marriage, the, 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 the worship-centered truth about marriage. So if you look at verse 4, the preacher says, first of all, marriage is to be honored by all. Marriage is to be honored by all. So right away, we have a word there that that elevates the importance of marriage and even the sphere of its recognized importance. Marriage is to be honored uh, by all, which which of course, first of all, indicates the the, the value of the institution of marriage. We could actually translate this to say that marriage is, is something that's to be counted as precious. That, that word honored there is the same word that's used in Scripture and other places to speak about precious jewels or precious stones. Um, so so if, we're, if we're going to live our whole life in a form of worship before God, part of that means that there is this extraordinary value that's to be attached to the institution of marriage itself. It's something of great worth. It's to be valued in, in that uh, special kind of way. Not, not just by some who are married or those who want to be married, but marriage is to be, marriage is to be honored by all the text says. So whether we are married or, or not married, whether we're committed to a life of singleness, whether we're wanting to be married or even struggling within an existing marriage, the, the point is made here um, across the board that marriage is to be held in this high place of honor. And on the one hand, while that's a very broad and general statement to make, it is a statement that reflects the, the liturgical truth about marriage that runs through all of Scripture. Why are we bringing this up as this uniquely honorable institution? Why does the preacher determine to camp on this? Well, we understand from Scripture that that marriage is a precious reality. And the preciousness of marriage is not, first of all, sourced in the social norms and and celebrations and all of those things attached to the, the, the mere human partnership. But the honorability of marriage is sourced in the fact that it is an institution ordained by God. Which is why we start the marriage ceremony like we do. After, after the bride has walked down the aisle and after the guests have all been seated, before we start in on any of the promises or vows or, or, or the poetry that might be read or the musical numbers that might be played, before anything else uh, that's going to exist on the horizontal plane of this marriage ceremony and celebration, the very first thing we say after the brides come in, all the guests are seated, we say, we're gathered here today, what? In the presence of God? along with these family members and friends, to join together this man and this woman in the sacred bond of marriage. And then we say, marriage is a special and unique relationship appointed by God 
between a man and a woman. Marriage is set apart in the scriptures as honorable to God because it's been designed by Him. As a result, marriage is not to be entered into lightly or carelessly. Instead, marriage is to be entered into thoughtfully with reverence for God and with the right consideration of the purposes for which marriage has been established by God. So, so even in the marriage ceremony itself, those very words, which I've read at some of your weddings, the very words of that ceremony are meant uh, to indicate the significant elevation uh, that marriage reflects in terms of much more than a mere horizontal exchange of vows and promises and dancing and these kinds of things. The marriage ceremony is first of all recognized as a vertical matter. Marriage is God's institution. And and, and so in noting what the preacher is emphasizing here, it's no surprise at all that there's a focus on the honoring of marriage as part of our lives of worship. Again, whether we're in marriages ourselves or whether we're we're supporting others who are are in their marriages, whether we're voicing our recognition of God's design for marriage in the public sphere, any of these things, it's an institution ultimately that's meant to be this public display, as we know, of Christ's love for His church, the church's love for Christ, and in this, it is elevated to this extraordinary position of honor. So marriage is to be honored by all. It's God's unique institution in that way. And as we think about the impact of that statement, there is something worth considering about the the first century context of Hebrews and and Christianity and marriage in general. And it's worth considering uh, simply because it reflects the fact, uh, what we're going to look at here does reflect the fact that marriage as an institution is not something that we might say is, oh, going through so much turmoil in our own time and, and all of these things. But we recognize, actually, we could go all the way back to Genesis 3 and see that marriage is something that has routinely been troubled in its reality because of contrariness to the marriage truth uh, as God has revealed it. And so just, just to reflect on that a little bit from the first century stuff that, that, that would be going on for the church, especially we see this in the church of Corinth. Uh, we saw in, in, in Corinth that um, in, in chapter 5, uh, there's an instance where uh, sexual boundaries of the marriage union were not being taken seriously by the church. Paul has to address this, this apathy towards infidelity in, in the congregation, and he has to say to them, you know, you need, you need to take this much more seriously because the church didn't seem to care about the sacred unity that's called for in the marriage bond. And so we see that as an aspect of pressure that marriage can face, the, the sacredness of that unity. There's, it can be an apathy toward infidelity. All of that kind of, uh, that kind of thing can be going on. And another struggle in the early church was one we can refer to as, as severe restriction. Again, Paul's speaking to the Corinthian believers and he, and, he, and he has to speak to them because some were urging abstinence in marriage. As if to be a truly holy Christian in marriage, the couple was to refrain from sexual intimacy. To which Paul again responds and says, no, that's totally wrong. For a number of reasons, that kind of restriction is contrary to, to, to one of God's holy and good purposes for marriage. So Paul has to say, don't deprive one another in, in that kind of way. So on the one hand, you can see how this distortion would come in. On the one hand, there's, 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 this, there's this distortion within the church that just sees the marriage bond as something light and, and not mattering at all. On the other hand, there's this distortion that says you need to refrain from sexuality, which is a, 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 a extremely central and critical component of a marriage that's flourishing. And so so we see how these things can occur. And then, with all that kind of stuff going on, Paul has to write to Timothy, who's ministering in Ephesus, and Paul has to tell Timothy that some teachers are going to be coming into the church who will actually prohibit marriage altogether. This is another way marriage is going to be in in trouble, be threatened in the the congregation there. And and Paul said that, uh, that these folks would come in saying that nobody should get married at all. In 1 Timothy 4, Paul says that some will come into the church having departed from the faith, 
teaching the doctrines of demons. That's how he talks about it, which sounds very dark and scary. But what are those doctrines of demons? Well, Paul says they're going to come in forbidding marriage as a doctrine of demons, forbidding people from getting married. So, so, so put all that together, and we can see why the subject matter of marriage is critical to address just when it comes to, to, to living life in the early church, but especially as it's being lived out in this posture of worship. Because in the first century, we can read our Bibles and see very plainly, even in the church, confusion, apathy, these kinds of things abounded with regard to the marriage covenant. And again, in our own day, things aren't so different. Marriage is to be honored by all. So marriage isn't something that can be thought of less than and therefore in less than kind of terms and therefore diminished. Marriage isn't to be understood in mere human and social terms and as a result be distorted or maybe disregarded altogether. Why would we need to engage in that? That's just uh, some old stodgy thing. Marriage isn't something that can be tampered with and redefined for all of those reasons. Uh, the scriptures speak clearly as, as, as we read in Genesis from the very beginning of things. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother. And be bound to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So marriage, by God's design, is an honorable institution to be held precious by all. There's this liturgical truth about marriage. And, and so what, what does that mean for us in our lives of worship? Well, I mean, it means a number of things. Um, but, but at the very least, it means the, these relationships are never unions to be taken lightly or for granted. Uh, like we say, again, in the marriage ceremony, we talk about how this is a subject that requires sacred and sober consideration. To, to work on our marriages is to engage in the service of worship before the living God. Do you ever think about that? It's an important thing to think about at times. You think about the fact that, that there are seasons in our life as a married couple where things are very uh, strenuous, things can seem disconnected, things can seem frayed, and you sit down and you have those difficult conversations, and it's very helpful to know that as we sit down and have those difficult conversations at times, maybe which involve repentance, maybe which involve great patience or forbearance, all of those kinds of things, as we're sitting down to have those kinds of conversations, we're actually reflecting a worshipful posture of heart toward the living God as we're engaging in those conversations. Which, which is something that is just good to have in our minds as we see the nature of our marriage lives in general because there's points of great joy in marriage. There's points of wonderful joy. And, 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 the, and the, the communion that we share with our partner and the friendship that that represents, the longevity of commitment, the source of that, of that kind of unique friendship is something that is entirely joyful in so many ways. But then there are the hard days. And whether it's the hard days or whether it's the days that are marked by that companionship and joy that marriage can also bring, either way, as we engage in our marriages, we do so with this vertical intention foremost in our minds. My marriage ultimately isn't one that's centered entirely between me and Julia. That's not a full picture of what my marriage is. My marriage is one that is, as Julia and I are together, vertically oriented, which means hard conversations are acts of worship. It means enjoyable events where we can go together. Julie and I got to drive to Salt Lake a few weeks ago and spend a bunch of time in the car together. We talked more hours straight than we've talked since having kids. 14 years, right? And it was so nice. Like, we should be friends. This is really fun. So there's these sweet times as well. And as you're going through the difficulties or the sweetness, all we're th we, we, one thing that we have in our mind is the fact this is a worship-filled opportunity. 
I'm engaging in a way that reflects the fact that I'm loving God for the gift He's given and recognizing ultimately that even in the context of our loving one another, we're reflecting God's design for Christ and His people, this loving care that we extend to each other. And response to that, this is all reflecting God's purposes. And so that just helps frame things. Marriage isn't something that's merely transactional, a social partnership, these kinds of things. Marriage is ultimately a central aspect of worship as we go through life, which extends not just to the marriage couple, but to the friends of the married couple, even to the even even to, to the context of in the context of helping maybe a struggling marriage. We exercise worship as we sit with a couple who may be struggling and encourage them. We extend help and uh, worship in, in the context of marriage as we as we make a way for maybe a young married couple to go out for an evening and just get a little time together. All of these things are ways we honor the institution that God himself has set up. So so there's this this general liturgical truth about marriage. It's to be honored by all. And and we want to put that down as a major uh, pillar of truth that helps us understand how we relate to this life of marriage as people who have been saved for all of life to be worshipped. So marriage is to be honored by all. There's this liturgical truth. And then from there, the preacher continues to work things out by speaking not just about the liturgical truth of marriage, but he goes on to address the liturgical parameters within marriage, or we might say the liturgical restrictions of marriage. So so look at verse 4 again and and see this. Uh, The preacher here has determined that it would be helpful to speak about marriage parameters, uh, of which there are many, but he's going to particularly relate them to sexual fidelity. Which, which, is, which is useful uh, across history. But, but even when we think about the, uh, the, the first century uh, Greco-Roman world and the, and the presence of marriage in that culture, um, as, as things were present there, uh, we know from historians that, for example, husbands uh, were free to be unfaithful to their wives in the context of marriage. The wives were not free to be unfaithful to their husbands. There were those kinds of things. There, were the, there, there was the, the, the prostitution tied to the worship of the Greek gods and goddesses in the temples around. Uh, so, so there was a, a, a culture uh, within the realm of sexuality that was very detrimental to God's definition of marriage and, and how that was meant to flourish. So we can see why this would need to be addressed. Uh, even what Paul has to say, like we just read earlier, we can see this is a, this is a, a, a real need because uh, even as Paul's addressing things, uh, two of the three main things he's addressing are actually in the realm of sexuality. And so this is, this is something central that needs to be uh, clear and plain for us. And so we know, uh, just as in that age, in every age, Boundaries in the arena of sexuality are boundaries that humanity does love to reject. Uh, It's part of our fallen human nature in all categories to desire to to cast off any kinds of restriction. Uh, We think of the very first sin, Adam and Eve in the garden. Eve's decision to eat the fruit of the forbidden tree was sourced in her desire to, to spurn the restrictions of God ultimately. We can eat of all the trees, just not that one. Just not that one. And it was that prohibited tree that represented enticement to sin. It was the restricted tree. Throw off restraints and be free. That was the lie in the garden. It is, it is part, just generally speaking, of our, of our fallen hearts to reject parameters. Restrictions, instead of appearing to be life-giving, restrictions appear to us as life-constricting. Which, which is true for us when we're, when we're three years old and we want to have cake for dinner. How ridiculous is it that my parents won't give me, I love cake, cake's here, it's dinner time, I'm hungry. How ridiculous is it that they won't let me have cake for dinner? 
Well, we understand that that is, that is a restraint that is ex- an expression of love on the part of parents, isn't it? But, but things don't really change into adulthood, especially as we think about the realm of, of sexuality. When, when a person throws off what they perceive to be mere social or, or religious shackles of sexuality and seek to be their authentic self. You know, you get the app, you swipe left, you indulge in what feels right to me. Rejection, uh, re- rejecting any kind of restriction is what we as humanity do best, not least of all in the realm of sexuality. However, we know that the God who designed this created order is the God who gives uh, life-giving restrictions, and those restraints are reflected in the entirety of the created order and reflect an enormous emphasis of God's good design in creation for our benefit. So so we give the examples, and we've talked about this before, but you just think about the the examples in the natural world of these restraints that ultimately work toward our flourishing and well-being. You think think of the fish in the sea. Remove the fish from the restricted boundaries of the water. Look how free that fish is now. It can flop wherever it wants to flop, right? For about two minutes until it dies because the restriction of the sea, the restriction of the river was what gives life to it. Or the train on its tracks. We can can think of the children's story where the train's going down the track, sees an open field and thinks, oh, there's freedom for me. Jump the rails out into the field and we know how that that ends. Or the musician and their chords and, and scales. The restriction of the scales results in the production of truly pleasing sound. The world God made isn't a world where the restrictions of His created order are meant to squeeze out life, but instead, the world God made is a world where the restrictions of God's revealed will are designed to promote the flourishing of life. And that's the case very much with marriage and the parameters involving sexuality. Which, which reflects our posture of worship with regard to sexuality and marriage. And that's what the preacher is angling at here. Our life of worship, as it relates to marriage, is one that is restricted by God's purpose for sexual expression, which is ultimately a flourishing and whole reality. So the preacher says the marriage bed is to be kept undefiled. And in other words, the marriage relationship isn't to be violated by sexual sin. Because the preacher says here, God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterers. And we'll talk more about that in a moment, but the word translated sexually immoral there is a word that just speaks to to violations of God's design for sexuality in general. It's just a a broad term uh, for for, for sexual sin. And then the word translated adulterer there is one that's more uh, pointed to the the violation of the marriage covenant. But, But he's using both of those terms, and we see in both cases there is this one big thing in view, and all of this is tied together. We, we see the preacher is, is, is intimating that the specific and critical point that sexuality has a happy and honorable and pure place in marriage. So sexuality expressed outside of that covenant is a violation ultimately of God's holy standard, of His life-giving standard. It's something that puts us in, in jeopardy of the very judgment of God Himself. And, and on the one hand, we, we do recognize that this seems so contrary just because uh, how, how our minds have been inundated with the sexual nature of the culture around us. So, so we can think about saying things like, like the confines of sexual expression are there between a man and a woman in the holy bonds of marriage. We can say that and immediately that can sound so prudish to whoever we might be speaking to given how things are going in society around us. To confine sexuality in that way. Uh, intimacy in the life of a husband and a wife together. It seems prudish. It's like it's like a leave it to beaver leftover kind of thing. It's uptight. It seems archaic in terms of morality. Which is not a surprise to us because as as uh, 
as, as the celebrity news stories break and the apps open and the new series on Amazon airs, whatever it might be, as the noise all around us indicates, it could seem that this kind of restriction is just ridiculous. Boundaries for sexuality, confine them to marriage. The world around us speaks so contrary to that. The sacredness, what, what are you talking about sacredness in that area? But then we remember the fish in the sea, the trains on the tracks, the musician and their chords, we remember Adam and Eve and that one tree and how things went for them when they threw off the shackles of God's directives. Was it the experience of paradise as Adam and Eve threw off the restrictions of God? No, it was shame. It was turmoil. It was death. Restrictions removed equaled paradise lost. And that's certainly true in the context of sexuality. The, the, the God of good purpose doesn't create restrictions for punishment. He doesn't create restrictions so that we would live this, this, this pressed down, tiny, smush life with no outlets for fun or involvement. He creates restrictions for the flourishing of life. And in embracing that truth in the realm of sexuality, we're actually presenting our bodies as vessels of worship. Marriage is, is, is a realm through which liturgical living is reflected in God as pleased, not least of all, in our sexuality. And, and, and so as we think about this, we have this liturgical truth about marriage that is to be honored by all. And then we also have these liturgical parameters within marriage. We worship as we recognize sexual expression is restricted in a life-giving way to the monogamous relationship between a husband and a wife. And, and as, we, as we engage in this, as we work this truth out, actually as we even let this truth be worked out in our lives, even as it can seem uh, contrary to, to all that's being spoken of around us, as we let this work out, actually the physical and emotional and social benefit, all these horizontal benefits are confirmed by an embrace of this worshipful posture. There is wholeness there. There is rest there. There is true commitment, a kind of love that transcends other loves that we've known, a kind of intimacy that transcends other kinds of friendships that we've known. There's something very unique about all of this. And so we just want to see how the preacher has framed things here. Not only is marriage something to be held in high honor, but marriage is something that has these parameters ultimately that are there as we read across the scriptures. Ultimately, those parameters are there to bring life to us. And then along, along with that, we also notice that the preacher has one specific note on this subject that, that he'd like to make before, before he leaves off, and it is this word of warning. And then we see this word of warning here uh, where he says very directly in the last part of verse 4 that to disregard the sexual ethic of God's design is not just to put things in the realm of, of maybe social or emotional or physical hurt, but it's actually to put us in danger of the judgment of God himself. It is something interest, interesting to note just how freely the preacher of Hebrews regularly references the judgment of God as a motivator for holy living. You notice that? I just reflect on my own, if this is a preached sermon, first of all, I reflect on my own preaching. Is, is that something that, that regularly is reflected in the way we think about Christian life? What has the preacher told us already? But this God, this God is a consuming fire. And it's to put ourselves in danger of judgment with God himself to violate the sexual parameters which he's given to humanity and set down in terms of the boundaries of marriage and these kinds of things. So, so in one sense, this, this connection is very clear between worship and, and, and what he's speaking about here with regard to the judgment of God. Sexual fidelity in the practice and, and support of God's design for marriage. Sexual fidelity is an act of worship, which means the opposite must also be true. To, to reject the design of God, to determine uh, that we'd like to be you know, trains that jump off our tracks so we can go play in the field. But what's the outcome of that? Well, it's not the worship of God, 
but it's treason against God. It's a determination that that tiny-minded me will be living my best life by rejecting what my life-giving creator has revealed and instead embracing the indulgence of my lust. I'm the three-year-old with cake for dinner, which only ends in losing. Because our God is a consuming fire. It's unsafe to exchange an act of worship for an act of treason. Which is a heavy word. It's a heavy word. And, and, and we have those heavy words, not, not least of all addressing the realm of sexu- sexuality throughout the Scriptures. A number of, 1 Thessalonians 4 is a, an example of this where Paul t- speaks to the church there. He says, this is God's will, your sanctification. Which is just a wonderful statement. What is God's will for my life? That I would grow in holiness. That's His will for my life, that I would grow in holiness. And then, and then Paul actually works that out further for this context in Thessalonica where he says, uh, your sanctification, well, what is that, Paul? That you keep away from sexual immorality. That each of you knows how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not with lustful passions. And then Paul goes on to say, the Lord is an avenger of these offenses, for God has not called us to impurity but to live in holiness. Consequently, Paul says, anyone who rejects this does not reject man but rejects God. Whom He takes it vertical. It's a worship category. It's a weighty word in the realm of sexuality. And in one sense, we we, we can all reflect on our own history, and this word can genuinely be quite disheartening for us. Jesus himself tells us that for a person even to think on another with lust in their heart is what? It's like adultery, spiritually speaking. Which one of us has been perfectly pure in thought, word, and deed in the realm of sexuality before the living God? Not me, not you. And and what about the one who has found themselves in very direct physical violations of God's design as it's explained here? Does that mean that that, that it's only judgment under God for that person who's fouled out in these ways? Is it just all over? Well, of course, we know the answer to that question is no. No. He's not speaking here about the repentant one. For this too, we recognize, even from the book of Hebrews itself, we recognize that for this too, we have the superior son. And in fact, in fact, just listen to, to, to Christ's speech in the, in the book of Revelation. We read this Thursday night in our elder meeting. But listen, listen to uh, this, this excerpt from the book of Revelation where Jesus speaks about uh, looking into the, into the new creation and, and, and all the blessings that are there for us. Listen to this. Jesus says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. So just in case there's any, any, any confusion about that. I'm the one, Jesus says. And then he says, Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter the city by the gates. It's an expression speaking about entering into the eternal realm of heavenly new creation. Outside, outside of heaven, new creation, are the dogs, sorcerers, sexually immoral, the murderers, idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. That's Revelation 22. Now, on the one hand, What an extraordinarily invasive list of those who will be outside heaven and under the judgment of God. Everyone from those who practice falsehood, so so liars, people who said stuff that's not true, to the sexually immoral, to the murderer. But you notice what sets apart those who have the right to the tree of life, who have the right to this heavenly city, what sets those apart from those who are cast out of the city and removed from the eternal realm of God's uh, heavenly new creation forever. Jesus doesn't say, blessed are those who have been morally perfect, free from infidelity, having never murdered, coveted, or lied. Jesus doesn't say, those are the ones who are in the heavenly city. What does he say? He says, blessed are the ones who... Wash their robes. In other words, blessed are those who are not clean. 
but come to Christ to be made clean through the finished work that he's done. Which brings us right to the center of all that's going on in Hebrews. How do we live this life of worship? Why do we live this life of worship at all to begin with? Do we live this life of worship because we've kept ourselves clean? If I've, if I've fouled out on the sexual front, am I done with living for Jesus and worshiping Him with my life from this day forward? It's all lost for me. If I violated the standards of God's design, should I just throw in the towel? Who cares now I'm already done? No. no. Why do we live a life of worship? Not because we've kept ourselves clean, but because Jesus has done what is necessary to make us clean. Because as we come to Him with all our burdens of sin and shame and hurt and the hurting of others, all of these things, as we come to Him reeling from the indulgences of temptation in the realm of sexuality or any other realm for that matter, as we come to Him, He says, I will wash you white as snow. He's the one who makes us clean. That's the amazing thing that Jesus has accomplished and that through Him we're made pure and we're made pure before the bar of God's judgment. So much so that the judgment spoken about here is escaped by those who are in Christ and are following Him. It's not, that does not give us license to indulge in these things because the one who follows Jesus will live this life of worship. That's part of the assurance of salvation we have, that, that I do desire to walk in the ways of Christ. But what we have to know is that because of what Christ accomplished, I am no longer that person under the burden of guilt and judgment before the living God. I am free from that. And here's the amazing thing that accompanies that. It's not just that in God's sight I'm clean. So I'll stand before him on the final day and he'll say, because of Christ, enter into this eternal rest and have joy. It's, it's not just that before God I'm clean, but actually Hebrews chapter 9, again using liturgical language, actually says that Jesus is the one who is able to cleanse our consciences. So it's not just that I'm clean before God, which is, which, is, which is obviously extremely refreshing, extremely hopeful, but can still leave me kind of weighed down by my life. The amazing thing about what Christ has accomplished is He has done what's necessary to cleanse our consciences. So that as they're spiked and, and, and spurned by the realization of our violations of God, instead of that being the truth of who I am, I have now been made entirely new and a conscience that would otherwise weigh me down and burden me and make me feel so sorrowful because I've gone in these ways that I ought not to have gone. Through Jesus Christ, that inside of my heart can be cleansed and I can be lifted from that, uh, having that, uh, that burden can be lifted from me which is an amazing truth, not only to go through life assured before the bar of God's judgment that I'm clean, but I can go through life with that burden lifted, having Jesus himself, who's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. There is no one who is this powerful. The King of kings and Lord of lords says on the inside, you're good. Guilt is gone. Which is an extraordinarily glorious truth. I no longer live with that burden in my heart because Jesus has done what's enough to lift that entirely. Which again, what does that do for us? What, what does it do for me to, to consider the fact that I'm clean in the inner recesses of my heart and mind, clean before the God of the universe? What does that do to me as I think about the totality of my life? Does it make me want to wander off in sinful ways again? No. No, the exact opposite is true. It makes me want to live my life as a living sacrifice, praising God for the purity that He's purchased for me. I live my whole life as a matter of worship. I live my whole life with a heart that's renewed in the grace of Christ, a desire to live for Him, not so I can get Him, but because He's already come and got me. And in that, I rest enormously. And so one of the ways we, we respond to Jesus making us clean 
is in this realm of marriage and sexuality. It's a life of gospel liturgy. The conversations you have with your wife, the honoring of the bonds of marriage and intimacy, and all of these things. We turn to Christ. Even this morning we turn to Christ and say, renew us, refresh us in this. Make us clean in this. Help us see the realities of what you've given us in these bonds and may we live this out in a way that reflects the kind of love that you've first shown to us. Ultimately all for the glory of God and and the gospel product of joy in our own lives. This doesn't leave us crushed, it leaves us happy because we see God's purposes in these things and his renewing purposes in order that we can live this life of flourishing Purchased not by our own purity, thank God, but purchased by Christ's own cleansing power at the cross. So we have a verse like this, and what, is this, what does this leave us doing? Well, Jesus, keep me near the cross. Jesus, keep me near. What's my glory? My purity? No way. What's my, my glory is the cross of Christ. That's what's made me clean. And it's there where we place our hope. Let's pray. So, Father, we ask that this word would be a refreshment to our hearts. Uh, may we be uh, those who follow your word in a way that brings honor and glory to you, living lives that reflect uh, your directives, ultimately, uh, because we confess that these are the directives of life. Uh, while they honor you as we engage in these things, ultimately, uh, they also bring great wholeness to who we are. And we thank you that you have expressed this kind of love for us and revealed uh, your good way for us. We ask that we would walk in it renewed, refreshed, lifted up, uh, because Jesus Christ is the one who does that work on our behalf. We ask this in his name. Amen.